Colossians 1 tells us that the one we just sang about, you may be seated. No one like you, O Lord. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by the one we just sang about, we're singing too. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything, all things were created through him and for him. It exists for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything that is right now, he created it, and right now he's keeping it from falling apart. He's the head of the body, the church. That's why we're here. We're here to hear from him. We're here to have him speak to our hearts. We're here to fellowship with our king through the preaching of his word and fellowship at his table. So let's turn our hearts to him this morning. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. And we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Well, we've made our way now into the seventh and final seal. You may remember that in each of these uh, groupings of judgments that are typed by seals and then by trumpets and then by bowls, uh, each of them contains seven cycles, seven go-arounds. We're looking at the same period of time from the resurrection of Christ until His return, but with each cycle, we're, we're looking at a, a, a different aspect or a different emphasis, or it's just drawing our attention to something that wasn't seen in one of the previous cycles. And we're just in that first grouping now, in the seals, and we've made our way now into the seventh of them. Now let's keep in mind what's, what's going on here. Going back to Revelation chapter 6, where these seals were beginning to be Uh, taken off, in the hand of Christ, going back to chapter 6, is a scroll, a scroll that he himself took from the right hand of Almighty God. He was the only one worthy to do it. That's why in chapter 5, John is so overcome with emotion. Who is worthy to take the scroll? Because it has implications for the seven churches, uh, for for their well-being, for their safety, for their hope, for their enduring to the end. Somebody has to take this scroll that is written front and back, which is the divine decrees of God. The, the execution of God's plans and purposes, someone has to take it and make it happen. May it be so. But who is worthy to go and do that? Christ, the, sla- the, the slain lamb, is the only one who's worthy. And so he takes the scroll, and the scroll is sealed with seven, think of wax seals. And so in order to open that scroll, those seals 
have to be broken. They have to be unfolded. And so over the past few weeks, we've been going through chapter 6 and chapter 7 where Christ is systematically, individually pulling apart these seven seals. The first four seals, you may remember from chapter 6, they all went together. And we're going to see the same thing when it comes to the first four trumpets and then the first four bowls. All four grouped together. But why? We're looking at the same thing every time we go around. Just different, different emphasis. The first four are grouped together. And they're, they're in the seals known as the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, but they showed us that Jesus on the throne, he is sovereign over everything that is happening over this time period from the resurrection until his return. In this world that has rejected him, he is on his throne. He is sovereign over it all. He is executing his judgments, restrained judgments. He's executing his judgments upon the earth because of its rejection of him. And we saw those four horsemen, the the conquest of greed, which makes life unbearable here on earth. And then you had wars and famine and then death and the grave. And so these are the the, the restrained judgments of our king upon a world that continues to reject him. And that's, that's life, how life here has been for 2,000 years, and it will continue to be until he returns. And then the opening of the fifth seal turned our eyes heavenward. The first four were God's judgment upon the earth and, and all the calamity and the hardship and the afflictions and the sufferings that are God's doings. And then simultaneously, same time period, look up with the fifth seal, and we saw those saints before the altar of the Lord, and they were crying out with a question, O Sovereign Lord. Why why Sovereign Lord? Because in the first four seals, He's the one who's sovereign over everything that's happening in place. All the judgments on the earth. And now, O Sovereign Lord, we see what you're doing, but we have a question. How long before you will finally and ultimately judge and avenge the blood of those who... Uh, on those who dwell on the earth. When you, uh, we see what you're doing. And man, it is bad. But God, you are just. You are true. You are sovereign. As bad as it is, your glory demands even worse. Your glory, what they have rejected you, King, they deserve worse. When, when are you finally and ultimately going to avenge and give this world what it deserves? And you remember what Jesus said? Rest. A little while longer. I hear your prayer. He gives them a white robe, which is a robe of, we saw last week, victory. A symbol of victory. But he also says, rest a little longer. Why? There's more that need to die. Martyrs, there's more like you. I have a purpose in the suffering of my people. My children, because they're going through all the hardships as well. There's not a one of us who are not also, even though we're Christians, touched by the conquest of greed, that are touched by the the resulting. And we're thinking not only physically, but spiritually, famine and wars. And and we, we live that. And he says, but in the life of those who reject me, I mean it for evil. I mean it for good for them who have have, um, rejected me. But in the life of my people, I'm using their suffering. When one dies for me, I'm using that. There's a purpose in it. So I hear what you're asking. How much longer? Just rest a little while longer. And then that brought us to the sixth seal, which was the unrestrained wrath of the king. It was final judgment on a world that will continue to reject him. 
And the wrath was so, will be so severe, so powerful, so frightening that on that day, every type of people, when they realize what is happening, that the king is true, that he's real, and now that he's angry. They did not, Psalm 2, kiss the son when he was merciful and gracious. Therefore, he has laughed and mocked their derision against him, and now he returns angry. That's the end of Psalm chapter 2. And now there's nowhere to turn. And they cry out, even the mountains fall. Bury us alive. That would be better. Crumble us. Could you imagine begging Mount Everest? Just fall on me right now. That would be better than to face the wrath of the coming king in judgment. And that seal, sixth seal, ended with a question. In light of the wrath and the omnipotent power, who can stand? Who's going to survive when he comes? And chapter 7 is a theological interlude that answers that question. And the whole answer really is, who can stand on that day? The answer of chapter 7 is the redeemed of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ are the ones who will, chapter 7 says, stand on that day. Depicted in two ways, the 144,000 who were numbered as a, the church militant, Set apart by God. They're down in this earth. They're here with all the restrained judgment of God going. And it is a fight. A fight against sin. A fight against Satan. A fight against the world. It's a, the church militant holding on, clinging, trying to get to the finish line. How will they stand? Remember, they're sealed with the blood of Christ. The angel comes and the winds of uh, final judgment are ready to blow. Wait, wait, wait. We've got to make sure all who belong to the king, are sealed. Because they, that is how they will stand in the final judgment. And then you get to the second part of chapter 7, and they show the exact same thing. Who will stand? The church. And look, here's a different perspective of the same group. Look at heaven. Here they are victorious, the church triumphant. They have found eternal rest in Christ. They have found through the, his bloody death upon the cross. Look where they are. They're there. They're before the throne of God. And they're at home. They're at rest. Oh, seven churches who are in the midst of all of this and you're suffering and, and you've got the call to repentance and the King is coming in wrath. Who will stand? You can stand. Look if you will look to the King. Those who were covered in His blood, who they will conquer through Him. They are victors through Him. That's why they're waving the palm branches. Hosanna to the King. Hosanna. Hosanna because we have survived. We are before the throne, not because of us, but because we have become victors and conquerors over our enemies through Jesus Christ. Who can stand? Only those who are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's only now, as we enter into chapter 8, we come to, there's still one seal to be opened. The seventh seal. And we read and saw in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I've got to be honest. That's awfully anticlimactic. After everything, everything has been building in intensity. That's a theme we're going to see in the transition as, from the first seal to the sixth seal. We'll talk more about this next week. In the transition from seals to trumpets and then to bowls, there is a growing intensity. 
It's kind of unexpected. You get to the seventh seal and you've got final judgment and then you have the seventh seal opens and it's silence. I mean, everything we've seen of heaven up to this point, heaven is not a quiet kind of place. If you like peace and quiet, if that's you won't like heaven. We have seen already in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus Christ and his voice is like the sound of many waters. In Revelation chapter 4, we saw the four living creatures around the heavenly throne who day and night don't, don't plan on sleeping. You think the dogs barking at night keep you up? Day and night, these angels do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The 24 elders then, in addition to those angels, they, they too casting their crowns. And now you got them proclaiming with a loud voice, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And it's just on and on and on. And then in chapter 5, you have the four living creatures and, and the elders singing a completely new song. They join together. In chapter 5 also, innumerable angels with a loud voice saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. The martyrs crying out in chapter 6. The innumerable multitude of the redeemed in chapter 7 crying out with a loud voice, salvation to our God. He, we conquer, we are victors, we have these right robes, we are before the throne through Him. Salvation to the Lamb. That's normal everyday life in heaven. <laughs> it's loud because God is worthy of this praise. This is what we were created for. But interestingly enough, after final judgment depicted in the sixth seal, when we come to the seventh seal, Everything goes silent. And I think John intends for us to read that and not just keep moving to say, wow, that's unusual. That's contrast to everything we've seen up to this point. Why? Why has everything gone silent now for a temporary period of time? And the answer is, John is an Old Testament scholar. That's his Bible. John's a man who knows his Bible. And in the Old Testament, silence is always associated with divine judgment. You can go back and look. We're not going to take the time to do it this morning. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 2, both of those picture God in His temple, on His throne, and He's about to bring divine judgment, and He commands in that context all the earth to be silent. You see the same thing in Zephaniah chapter 1, which is actually a foreshadowing of Revelation chapter 6, final judgment, and Zephaniah chapter 1, silence is likewise commanded in connection with the great day of the Lord and His judgment. So the silence here, while it does feel a little anticlimactic after man, the, just the majesty of final judgment, the wrath of the King coming down and decreating all of creation and all of humanity, crying out, fall on me, fall on me, and everything is destroyed, now it's just complete silence. And this picture of silence pictures the finality of it all. And man, that is wonderful. Let me put that in perspective for you. The finality of it all. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the sin of Adam and Eve. Man, this world has been spiraling. This world has been just chaotic. And we have been praying, going back to our spiritual parents, praying, oh God, end it. 
Oh God, when will you bring an end to it? Remember the cries of the martyrs, how much longer? We're exhausted, we're tired, we're beaten, we're overcome. Judge sin. Redeem your people. Just do it already. And even since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. And it could come pretty quickly, or it could be another 2,000 years. We, we don't know. But here, the finality of silence is signifying at this point, after final judgment, all sin has been judged. The redeemed, all that God intends to be, they have been gathered into heaven. They are before the throne. Evil has been removed from the earth. There will be no more tears, no more suffering. All the opposition of God and the opposition of His church, they're gone forever. Never again will anyone have to cry, How long, O Lord? No more waiting for God's name to be vindicated. Rather, what we have here, silence in the, on the part of heaven's citizens, represents the awe, the worship, the... You've probably never been here before. I haven't. Where you're so excited and overcome, there's screaming and excitement, and yeah, would be the right thing to do. But you're so overcome, you, nothing comes out. In such awe, that's the seventh seal. Ain't nothing anticlimactic about this. In this seventh seal, all of creation is worshiping and celebrating. He did it. He, he promised in the garden, Genesis 3.15, that the, 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 the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And, and certainly the cross was the beginning of that, but we've been waiting for 2,000 years for that final... Mm, Get him gone. And after that sixth seal, he did it. He promised. And man, he made us wait. He made us wait. And he made us wait. And it was a painful waiting. And it was a, a longing. We prayed. But God answered. He did it. One commentator puts it this way. The silence and the half-hour period are intended as devices. Read it this way. These are devices intended to intensify our perception of God's faithfulness to His Word. So when we see the silence, do not get all cut up. 30 minutes. Huh? I wonder how long that's going to be. Silent, huh? No. Fall on your face before this God. He made a promise and He kept it. Against all odds and all opposition and the works of his enemy, and even when it looked to our eyes, looked like, man, looked at times like our king was losing. He did it. He fulfilled his promises. He's conquered his enemies once and for all in final judgment. And now, all of the redeemed are in stunned silence because they have not been destroyed, they are before the throne at home. Because they have been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The silence is, God did it. He's faithful. Which brings us to a message I did not intend to preach this week. I intended to rush through verses 2 through 5 to get to the broader trumpet judgments. But just spending time and, and looking at this text, there is, I've told you from the get-go, 
Revelation is the most practical book in all of the New Testament. I hope you're at least starting to get a glimpse of that. I hope you're starting to believe that. We have made the book of Revelation something so impractical, because it may not even apply to us if it's some number of years out into the future and it may not even apply. I mean, that's just, forgive me, I used to be there too. What, what benefit is that to us, to the seven churches? This is a practical book. And in verses 2 through 5, God in his wisdom takes everything we've seen in these sealed judgments, which is really focused upon our king's sovereignty and protecting his church through it all as he's executing judgment on the world. I think the big takeaway from the seals is everything we see going on down here, the hardships, our king is in control. He's sovereign over it. As he's unfolding those seals, he's the one executing those things. He is sovereign over his judgments over the world. And then you have this section. This is still part of the sixth seal. Or excuse me, seventh seal. In verses 2 through 5, where... John writes, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So there's already beginning to be a transition to this next clumping of judgments that we're going to look at. We've got the same period of time, seven cycles in the trumpet, but just going to draw out different things than we saw in the seals. So he's beginning that transition, but he stops because he doesn't get to the first trumpet blowing until verse 6. So he mentions it, but it doesn't start until verse 6. And then in verse 3, he, he And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Wait a minute. It's over. Final judgment has occurred. All the redeemed have gone silent. It's over. Why this section on the prayers of the saints? What, what, what's the connection here? That's the question that has boggled me all week. It's over. Go right on into the trumpets. Let's take a look at this thing all over again and bring up some new stuff for me to see. Why mention the trumpets in verse 2 and then not blow the first one until verse 6? And we have verses 3 through 5, this whole section on prayer. Answer. Most practical book in the Bible. God wants his church to know. Our king wants his church to know. Oh, you were right. If your takeaway from the seals is that your king is on his throne, and though you seven churches and every church in every age, you see uh, the, the world around you, you see your own struggles, you see your own hardships, and you see and you see my judgments going on, and you're there and you're struggling with them as well, you're right to see I'm on my throne. And I'm the one executing the decrees of my God. But let me make sure you understand, church, something you need to be reminded of, even as all this is going on. The value of your prayers and accomplishing the decrees of God. I think that's what this section is about. Verses 3 through 5 in Revelation chapter 8 demonstrate for us something we need to be reminded of, I need to be reminded of, you need to be reminded of, probably every single day that the prayers of God's people do play an integral role in the unfolding of God's eternal 
decrees. God's eternal plans and purposes. And I want us to spend the rest of our time thinking about a few, few things about prayer. And I'll be honest, sometimes I forget. And to the degree that I forget them, prayer becomes very mundane and almost, what's the point? A few things about the beauty of prayer here in a very practical way. The first is, I think just asking the question, what is the point of prayer anyway? That's a question I've asked personally, and I'm sure you have too. I mean, you do it day after day after day, many times in the day, I'm sure. And sometimes it feels like our prayers don't go beyond the ceiling. And to whatever extent they do get through the ceiling, you do get to God, that seems like he's not listening. What is the point of prayer? And the context here is extremely critical. Because we've been looking at Jesus on his throne, protecting his church while they're here on earth, even in the midst of his judgments he's pouring about on the world that has rejected him. So, he is sovereign. He's the one opening the scroll, executing God's decrees, bringing God's purposes to pass. He is doing that. Everything that's on that scroll that God intends to occur is happening by the sovereign authority and power of Christ. Got that? The inevitable question is, well then, why pray? Right? If everything is already being executed according to the eternal decrees of God, that's the picture we've had, then what's the point of praying? Why would God attach prayer to the unleashing of the seventh seal here if Christ is already going to bring all these things to bear. Do you, see, do you see the rationale? Do you see what we're asking? If God's decreed everything and Christ is executing everything, then why pray? Why does prayer matter? And the answer of Revelation chapter 8 is prayer matters in every way because the God who has ordained the ends and he has ordained the execution of those ends through Christ, has also, and we've heard this before, but I pray in my own soul and in yours, we'll hear it with fresh ears, he has also ordained the means to accomplish those things. And that's what Revelation chapter 8 is showing us. Prayer is the very means that God has used to, to accomplish his purposes in the world. So, what we see here in Revelation chapter 8, your prayers, my prayers, are intimately bound up with what it is our king is doing in the world, even today, right now, as he's pouring out his judgments on the world that has rejected him. Our prayers are an integral part of that. Now, prayers are not this, and this is how I used to pray, perhaps you as well. I used to think prayer is me grabbing hold of God, and Lord, Lord, let me tell you something you don't know. Let me tell you about a situation that you're not aware of. Let me explain to you how bad things are, because obviously you don't know. You're busy, you got other things, so let me tell you about my hurts, my afflictions, my needs, the hurts of others, the afflictions, as though you don't know. Let me inform you, and then let me kind of bend your arm, let me really kind of milk it a little bit, so that you'll hear how emotional I am, how serious I am. And Lord, I want to bend you towards me. And I'm asking you to do this. And, and, and I'm expecting, Lord, that, that you're going to give me what I ask for. 
that's a lot of how I used to pray. Probably how you used to pray. I pray it's not anymore, but to whatever extent it is. We saw prayer as a way of informing God, petitioning God, and maybe twisting His arm to give us what we want. Prayer is not about changing God's already made up mind about what already He intends to do. Prayer doesn't mean that we twist God's arm and get Him in line with our desires. It's just the opposite. Prayer is a means of grace that God uses to bend our arms to Him. His eternal plans and purposes and decrees are already established. Ain't one of us going to convince Him to change His mind. He will not. He cannot. So why pray? Well, if it's obviously not to get Him to do my bidding, it's what? To align me with Him. To help me understand what I'm going through, the situation, the circumstances that I thought I needed to tell you about because you didn't know, or, or the, those that I'm praying for, their health issues, their salvation, this, that, or the other. It's bringing them before the Lord because He knows. He has a purpose. And praying is His way of saying, oh, dear child, you did the right thing coming to me. This is where you should come with that hopelessness, that helplessness, that hurt, that curiosity, that question, that concern that you have. Remember what Psalm 123 said? To you, O Lord, I look who sits enthroned on high. You've come to your king. You've come to your sovereign king who holds the scroll. And that situation you're praying for, that person you're praying for, they're on the scroll. The plans and purposes are in place. Bring it to me and trust me. Bring it to me and know that I hear your prayers and insofar as you pray in accord with me, I'm using your prayers to execute the plans and the purposes of God. Think about it this way. I'm not a boater. I read this, but I thought it was helpful. Imagine you're in a boat, you're out at sea, you want to come into land. So you approach the harbor, you throw your line onto the shore. Someone on the shore takes that rope, right, and they tie it to the land. They anchor it down. And then you take that rope that is on the boat, which is tied to land, and you pull on it, right? And from your perspective, what does it feel like? It feels like you're pulling that land to you, right? That's what it feels like. Is that what's happening? <laughs> what's happening? You're being pulled to that vast land. And that's what's happening in our prayers. We're not pulling God to us. Come on, God. I need this from you. It is, we go to God and we pray, and we're tugging, and he's pulling us to himself, to his purposes, to his plans, to his ways. And that's what it means to lay hold of God in prayer. We bow before him. We bow before his sovereignty. We understand prayer is a means of grace that he uses to accomplishes what he doesn't need us to do, but he has ordained prayer as a means to do that. And in prayer, we lay hold of God, and we are a part of what he is going to accomplish for his glory and for our good in Jesus Christ. And that now turns prayer 
into something of significance. Now all of a sudden I pray and it's not, I feel so helpless. I feel like it's not even going above the sky. I feel like he never answers. When we understand prayer this way, he's pulling me towards him. I understand, again, Psalm 123, we will pray until you act. We understand it's his timetable. It's his plans and his purposes. And prayer, if he's not acting, it's not because my prayers are worthless. It's because I'm aligning with him and his timetable and his good plans and purposes. We're the impotent ones. We're the limited ones. In prayer, God changes us, conforms us to himself. And that's why in verse 3 he says he uses the prayers of all the saints. Not just special ones, not just uh, preachers or seminary professors or those who have reached a certain level of spirituality. It's the prayers of all the saints. Every one of your prayers are recorded in the register in heaven. Just another way of saying, you may feel like your prayers don't matter. They do. They do. That's the point of prayer. Notice he says, secondly... It's the saints who pray. Well, who are the saints? These are the ones who are believers. Those who've been redeemed out of the world, separated from the world, separated unto Christ. Redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sins forgiven, reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. These are those, the called out ones, set apart unto Christ. It's those who... God has covenanted himself to. That when you pray, saints, separated out of the world unto Christ, I've covenanted myself to hear you when you pray. He's covenanted himself to hear our prayers and our cries. You know, that's not true for the unconverted. Nowhere in Scripture does God covenant himself to hear the prayers of the unbeliever, of the unconverted. I'm not saying he won't hear those prayers. I'm saying he has nowhere promised, as he has to the saints, that he will hear the prayers of the unconverted. The Puritans used to talk about when God did appear to answer the prayer of an unconverted person, it was so radically out of the ordinary, they had a term for it. It was called uncovenanted blessings. Because it was so remarkable. He's never covenanted himself to hear the prayers of every person. I commend to you, he does not. He has covenanted himself to hear the prayers of his saints, of his children. And the point of Revelation chapter 8 is, is your prayers, if you're a child of God, do matter. They do matter. He hears. He has obligated himself to hear. Which leads us to another point. Notice where these prayers are laid here in Revelation chapter 8. The angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. This is so critical to understand. Do not get caught up in the beauty of a golden altar. Everything in Revelation is symbolic. What's the altar here? It's the blood of Christ. The altar is the place where blood is shed. What makes this one golden so special? It's the blood of Christ, the, the Lamb, 
who was slain, who shed His blood. So these prayers are laid out on this golden altar, if you will, upon the, the merits of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, upon the atoning merits of our King. Which is why when we pray, and hopefully it's not just a form prayer we pray, I'm guilty of it. And I, I really try now when I use this language to make sure I'm, my heart is contemplating what I'm saying, but this is why we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Or for Jesus' sake. Amen. Or for the glory of our King. Amen. You know like I know. We kind of attach that at the end and almost don't even think about it. I would commend to you, if, if we're going to put on the balance of scales, which one we're paying more attention to, the content of our prayers or in Jesus' name, uh, spend more time contemplating we lay these prayers down in the altar of Christ's blood upon his merits. Every prayer of the saint is laid upon the altar. That's the only way for us to approach God in prayer. Prayer is only acceptable to God when it's laid upon the altar of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I go to church, I try to be a good person, I try to pray, but, but nothing ever happens. He, he, he never seems to answer. That's a, a pity I have spoken and uttered out of my own lips. And one day God reminded me, well, what are you praying for? Are you praying selfishly? Is it all about you? Is it all about your comforts? Is it all about your wants? All about your desires? Are my prayers, on, are they going onto the altar of Christ, which is for his sake, for his glory? Or are all my prayers about my own comforts or the comforts of my loved ones? I want this, that, and the other for them irregardless of what most glorifies you, king. That's a lot of the ledger of my prayers. But these prayers have been laid at the altar, the bloody altar. And these are the prayers that our God hears. The ones who are bathed in the blood of Christ for Christ's sake, for His glory. And that leads us to how these prayers get presented to God. They've been uttered, right? We put them on the altar. How do they get presented to God? Read again verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. You hear? Something's having to be mixed here. We have our prayers, and then we have something called much incense. And before it's presented, twice now we've been told, this has to be mixed. Are you getting the imagery? It's mixed with the prayers of the saints, and then it rose before God from the hand of the angel. So what is this that's having to be mixed, if you will, with our own prayers that we're praying on the altar in Jesus' name and for His glory. Well, the, I think the much incense here is the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. It, it's, it's having, Christ is taking our weak, impotent, imperfect prayers. We do the best we can in Jesus' name. And He mingles them with His own merits, His own perfections, His own righteousness. So you see, you've got the... It's the best we got, but it's not perfect, and our God is holy. And if this is going to be presented to that God, it's got to be perfect, 
right? Not even a spot of blemish can be in his presence. So you have here Christ mingling his own righteousness with the prayers of the saints. Spurgeon put it this way. Our great high priest is here represented as standing at the golden altar before the throne, having in his hand a golden censer full of incense, and the fragrance of that incense would give acceptance to the prayers of the saints for his sake. So before our prayers can be presented to the Father, it's got to have the aroma of Christ's perfection. And so this incense, this perfume, if you will, it, it, Christ mixes them together so that his righteousness perfumes our prayers. It, it makes them righteous. Because our prayers are worldly, sinful, selfish. There's always that mixture of selfishness. Christ takes it and he makes it sweet and acceptable for the God. That's the symbolism. Christ takes the prayers of the saints, mixes his own merits, sprinkles that incense upon the prayers of the saints and says, Father, these are your saints' prayers to you. They're perfect prayers. Is it because I prayed a perfect prayer? This is the saints' perfect prayers for your glory and for our good. Father, it's yours. Now, you want to tell me your prayers don't matter? <laughs> Take that imagery. Does it, you really think? I mean, this is what's happening here. I think about, as I was working on this this week, I have prayed some pretty foolish prayers in my day. I go back to when I was a teenager. I prayed for this girl to like me. I prayed for this guy at school to drop dead. You know, not literally, but I prayed, Lord, I want to make this team. Lord, help me. Uh, Lord, I want to have a good season. Not, nothing wrong, all self-centered, right? We've all prayed foolish prayers like this. Maybe we've prayed foolish prayers this week. But our king takes our empty, foolish, self-centered prayers and infuses them with his own much incense, his own perfect merits, his own righteousness, making them acceptable to the Father. He makes something big out of something small, something righteous out of something unrighteous, something perfect out of something imperfect. Those small, imperfect, unrighteous things being our prayers, being made righteous, perfect, and good by the much incense of Christ. Uh, you think about it this way. When my boys sometimes like to go pick flowers, weeds, in the, in, from our front yard. Oh, it's so pretty. Mommy will like it. And they go around and pick some of these things up. I'm going to take it to Mommy. And she would be happy with it, but I rec recognize it's mostly weeds. And I see clumps of dirt. Tell you what, before you take it to her, let me see it. Let's pull this blade of grass out. Let's pull this out. Let's pull this clump of dirt off. This right here, it's, pretty, it's just a weed. Let's throw that out. Now, take that pretty bouquet to mom. You can take that. That's acceptable. It's the same thing here. What a comfort that is, right? We who struggle in prayer, I just feel unworthy. I feel like they're, that's what Christ is doing to our prayers. And that, doesn't that comfort you? Doesn't that inspire you to continue to pursue a deeper prayer relationship with God? And how wonderful must this be to John on the island of Patmos, who's probably ready to give up, and to those seven churches who are in the midst of all the persecution they're going through. Their prayers, they're being heard. They matter. There is hope. God is using these prayers to execute his plans and purposes. 
We're not going to spend a lot of time with it, but I also draw your attention that these prayers come. The trumpets, the next clumping of judgments is mentioned in verse 2, but they don't get executed until verse 6. Then you have these prayers. These prayers are part of the transition from uh, this to that, from the the seals to the trumpets. And and the picture here is is that um, there are angels, even as these prayers are being offered up to God, who are ready to move, ready to execute ready to accomplish the prayers of God's people, execute God's divine decrees. Uh, it just, it's it's going to happen here next week when we come to verse 6. They're ready to go. I think a lot of times we believe far too little in prayer. We believe far too little that anything will happen. Here, the prayers of the saints, God is executing. God is, he's using their prayers as a means of grace to accomplish his plans and purposes. Christ is sovereign, he's doing it, but prayer is a means, is a piece of it. And this is the practical message that John wants us to see here. And then finally this, in verses five and six, we're told that the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightnings, and an earthquake. So easy. I did it all week long. <laughs> it's so easy to rush right past that and think, uh, it's cool. Do we understand? It wasn't until last night that uh, this gripped me. Do we understand what this is saying here? Prayer changes things. Now, we have always, that's a great bumper sticker. Prayer changes things. We're talking real stuff here. Prayers are real and effective and a powerful force in the world. God here says he takes notice of the prayers of the saints and he executes those judgments where? On the earth. The result of these prayers were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The earth was being turned upside down, if you will, as a result of these prayers, working in correlation with the eternal plans and purposes of God and the sovereignty of Christ in executing. They all go together, but that's the power of prayer to turn the world upside down. Meaning, what we do together here at 9.30 every Sunday morning, it has more influence than what happens every single day in the White House. That's not any taking a shot at the White House or the government. That's just biblical theology. The power of prayer has the power to do more than the White House can do. Prayer in the hand of God, in accord with His eternal plans and purposes, is a potent force that no one can stop. And all throughout church history, this is confirmed. In John's day here in the first century, the church, they were a despised minority. We saw that in the seven churches. The Roman Empire was a powerful force. The Roman Empire was was causing Christians to compromise with the world. They've been called to repent. You know what happened just a few centuries later? The Roman Empire was no more. And Christianity was flourishing. Christianity was spreading over the whole world. It was the prayers of God's saints that God was using to turn the world upside down. Go back to the book of Acts in the early church. They were described as those who turned the world upside down through preaching and prayer. We read that and we think, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be more. 
We need a theology of prayer that understands how this is working together in correlation with our king's sovereignty and execution of God's divine decrees and plans and understand that they work together. And we must be people of prayer. It was true in the day of the Reformation. Men like John Knox and John Welsh were prayer warriors and great people God used to turn Scotland upside down. That's always been the case. It's through the prayers of His people that God sends out His thunderings and lightnings. It's through the prayers of His people. We're going to see this more clearly next week. So hang on to this imagery. But the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. We're going to see that correlation with the trumpets next week. The prayers of God's people does amazing things. Do we believe that? I'll be honest, I don't. Not always. I have my moments. Last night as I was finishing this up, I felt pretty good about prayer. What we need to be reminded of. We've just gone through the seals and the very easy things. Just sit back and say, wow. And totally miss. Oh, by the way, we play a role in that. Our prayers are a means of grace that our king uses to execute the plans and purposes of God to the ends of the earth. Did you know that dynamic that was just explained here? It's still what's going on in our prayers today. We pray in Jesus' name. We lay our prayers on the altar, the bloody altar. Christ himself takes it and mixes it with his own much incense, perfects it, makes it righteous, makes it holy, makes it in accord with the purposes of God, presents it to the Father. These are the prayers of your people, and it is in accord with your will and your purpose. And God says to the Son, go. Go. Do it. And prayer doesn't change the mind of God changes us. I don't know where you are in your fellowship with Christ in prayer. Maybe this morning fellowship with our king at his table will help stir up that heart to prayer more. But my hope in this is that we understand our role in this world between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return. Oh, there's so much going on around us. It's affecting us, affecting those we love. And of course, as Christians, we know we should be people of prayer, but sometimes we reach that point to where, oh, what's the point anymore? It doesn't seem to be affecting anything. Go back and reread Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 through 5. Be reminded, there's more going on in our prayers than we know. And seek the Lord while he may be found.